Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, Acts chapter 2, we are finally going to end, come to the end of this chapter. And so I'm very excited as I know the book well, and I know what lies before us. And what you'll find uh, is that Acts 2 was such a pivotal pivotal chapter that we spent quite a bit of time in it, uh, but now we can begin to pick up steam as we've laid the groundwork for so many uh, other points. And so we'll allow the narrative or the storyline of Luke here to carry us through to the end, and, and I think that you will be encouraged as we go through this book. Well, we're going to read Acts chapter 2, verses 43 to 47. So hear now the word of the Lord. It is written, so then those who had received his word, I'm sorry, I'm starting in 41, out of habit, um, 43, and everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I just spent five sermons on the core activities of the local church. These are to be the norm, the standard for when the church gathers. And so I can commend that if you are new here and you'd like to know what those are, just simply go back into our archives. It's all available on our app or our website, and you can see the things that should be present within a church service, the gathering of the church. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to pick up with that story by Luke in the book of Acts. And and at this time, we're going to see several actions, several events that are not normal. And so I've entitled the sermon, The Not Normal Church. So five weeks on what a normal church gathering should look like now becomes what is not normal for the church. Now, at issue behind this, and I could uh, spend a long time on this, but I'll give you just a brief uh explanation, is an issue that you have to wrestle through as an individual with regard to how to interpret the Bible. Uh, The issue has to do with descriptive versus prescriptive, events versus commands, narrative versus didactic. They're all different ways of describing the same thing. There are large portions of the Bible which is just simply a story, a narrative. It's just telling you what took place and who was involved and how it all unfolded. 
uh, but they're, and they're within that story, you'll see commands given, uh, commands given by God, such as to Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. That was a command by God. And so the question is, as you're reading the storyline, does that specifically one apply to me? But then also what the activities that are described in the story, are they, are they commands for us to obey? And so we see this with the house church movement. Uh, every once in a while, this whole house church movement rises up and comes really prominent, and then it settles back down. There's always people who are involved in it. Uh, I was part of a house church for a while when I was young, and they argue that, well, that's how the early church gathered, and therefore we should gather in the house. The problem with that is that's just part of the story. Nowhere does it command you to gather in a house. And so what you have to ask yourself is when you read the book of Acts and you see events happen, uh, is that something that we should expect or is that normal for us? And obviously from my sermon title, you can tell what I'm going to argue in this passage is none of this is normal, though it did happen. And it's a wonderful thing to happen, but it's not normal. When you come to the epistles, you come to overt commands. Things that Paul or Peter, whoever it might be, overtly commands the church to do. The letters are written to instruct us, and so we should pay close attention to what is demanded and commanded and what is forbidden. But when we're coming to a storyline, we should take that very carefully, and we should ask ourselves, does this even apply to us? Is this for us? Or is this for a different people or a different event or a different situation or a flat-out different people? So we have several events, activities described that are used by various people to push an agenda or a doctrine. And that's why I want to address this. And the way I'm going to do it is the first two points of my sermon will be heavy, and I'll, I'll deal with them in detail. I don't want you to despair. Uh, the last three points will be quicker. But I want us to understand this passage as best I can in the time given, because many times you will find this passage to be an example of why we should expect this or that. What we have here is simply a description. It's a description of several reactions to the advent of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. It's a wonderful picture, and even one that we might want to wish for in our day, but I want you to understand it is not normal. And so we're going to see six unique reactions to the gospel and the birth of the church, or six ways people, both believers and unbelievers, reacted to this new entity we call the church. So we're going to jump right into it. <clears throat> the very first point is this. There is a sense of holy dread upon unbelievers. We see this in verse 43. There is a sense of holy dread upon the unbelieving world. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. This is not actually talking about what is happening within the church, but it's within the greater society as they watch the church function and do the things that it's doing in this passage. 
What is happening in Jerusalem is it's being turned upside down because of this very unique time. They've already witnessed the day of Pentecost and all of the things that happened with the coming of the Spirit, all these people now bursting out in languages they did not know, proclaiming the great things of uh, God. Then we they have this guy named Peter who shouldn't know better, getting up and preaching. And then all of a sudden, thousands are now repenting, and they're now professing that the very man that was crucified on the cross was in fact the Messiah. He is their Savior. They confess that. They're being publicly baptized in his name. That already is creating conversations. And now, throughout this, uh, throughout this city, things are happening. And the people are afraid. The term actually that's used for awe here in, in my translation is simply the Greek word phobos. We get phobia from it. And it simply really means fear. And I, I would argue it's actually a better choice to use, even though I can certainly understand why awe is used. But we tend to weaken what awe is. And so I, I would rather use the word fear. It's interesting because Luke uses this term in Acts chapter 5 at an event that is, is shocking. Uh, there's a situation where a man and his wife, Ananias and Sapphira, and they had land and they sold it and they had told the people they would sell it and that they would give all the money to the church to be dispersed to those in need. But instead they held back a portion of the money and lied about it. And so Ananias goes in first, he does this, he's confronted by Peter, uh, he's caught in his lie, and the next thing you know, he's lying dead, killed by God, right there in the church service. The young men's job were to take the bodies out, so the young men had to drag his body out, and a short time later, in comes his wife. You can imagine how everyone's quiet and watching, it's like, what's going to happen now? Here's his wife. Peter gives her a chance to tell the truth. She too lies about the money. She too is struck dead, and once again, the young men are dragging a body out of the church. And then it says, the greatest understatement of the world, a great fear came over the whole church. Now you can imagine if Joey just drops dead and you're like, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. You're seeing something and you can call that awe or reverence all you want, but you're afraid. And that's what the people are experiencing. Go over, just keep your finger here, but go to chapter 19 and he uses this term again to describe a situation in chapter 19 verse 17. That's a fun story. Starting in verse 14, we have these Jews. The seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. What they were doing in verse 13 is that they thought that the name of Jesus and saying something in the name of Jesus was like a magic uh, power. Just like what you see today with all these <coughs> people on TV and in churches, in the name of Jesus, and as if somehow by saying that really boldly, there's some power unleashed. And so they're walking around trying to cast out demons, and they're going to get paid for that, and they're saying it by using the name of Jesus. And so they say, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the seven sons of one Sceva, the Jewish, a Jewish high chief priest, were doing this, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Now, that's just an awkward conversation right there. 
Uh, so they're dealing with a demonic being. They have now commanded him to come out in the name of Jesus, and instead he just says, so I know Jesus, I've heard about Paul, I have no idea who I'm talking to. And the man in whom the, was the evil spirit leaped upon them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I'm sorry, that's just an awesome story. So he takes down seven of them, rips their clothes off, beats them until they're bloody, and then they all run away. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greek, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them. And you can well imagine. Again, this was an immense, uh, immensely strange, unique event, and, and it causes the people to be afraid because they hadn't seen something like that before. Well, in both of those situations, fear is caused by a frightening supernatural act. God's judgment was upon uh, the people, or demons were attacking. It doesn't really matter what was happening. What is happening is that it drives the fear. That what drives the fear is this awareness that something way beyond our comfort level and our ability is taking place. And that's what's happening back here in our passage. Here we see in verse 43, if you just kept, keep reading, is that everyone kept feeling a sense of awe or fear. Why? And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Now, this is one of those passages that gets misused all the time within various groups. Pentecostal, charismatic, the third wave groups. If you don't know who they are, don't worry about it. But those who do, you understand. It's exceedingly popular in what is known as the NAR movement, the New Apostolic Reformation movement, as well as the Word of Faith movement. Every one of these movements interacts with this church and people in this church in various ways. That's why I'm mentioning that. You may not have it, but I deal with it all the time through conversations. Uh, these are groups we would not recommend. We would tell you to stay far away. They are on a sliding scale. We wouldn't put the, the charismatics as a whole in the same place as a new apostolic reformation, which is far more dangerous, but we would not recommend any of them. A man named John Wimber, who helped found what is known as the Vineyard, <coughs> the, the Vineyard uh, USA, uses this passage, among others, to argue for what he calls power evangelism. In fact, he wrote a book called Power Evangelism, and it's based upon this passage. It was very popular, and it's still read and understood and, and assumed in many, many places. The idea is simply that the most effective form of evangelism is when signs and wonders are present. As the people now see these miraculous events, then they are more predisposed to believe in Jesus Christ. I want to just show you quickly, and it will be quickly, some issues with regard to signs and wonders. So keep your finger there, but go to John 6, chapter 6, in verses 1 and 2. It says, after these things, Jesus went away to the, <clears throat> the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, and the great multitude was following him. Why? Well, because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Now look down at verse 14 and 15. And when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is the feeding of the, 
uh, of the several thousand of what? It was the 5,000. When the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of a truth, a prophet who is come into the world. And Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and make him, take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So they see him perform the signs and wonders. They see it. They're amazed. They're like, this is the guy we want ruling us. So they actually think in the brilliance of their mind, we'll just take him by force and make him be our king. He withdraws. Then you can look down at verse 26. And now they come back the next day. He's gone across the, the sea. Uh, and now he wakes up and he goes out and all the people are there waiting for him. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. In other words, they wanted breakfast. And he's saying, look, I did these signs. I showed you these things, but they did not convince you of anything. You're not here because of the signs, though you may say you are. You're here simply because you want me to do more. In other words, you want me to feed you some more. So what? in the end, in this whole exchange, we end up in verses 65 and 66, and he says, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So it goes from feeding the 5,000 to a massive multitude coming over to seek him out the next day, to him rebuking them and saying, you're not here because of the sign you want to be fed. Then he preaches to them a nature of what it means to and why people come to him. It has nothing to do with our own will. And when it's, he's all said and done with it, they're all leaving. So they were, they were disciples for a day or two, and that's all. But that didn't change the sign, but it wasn't something that created a massive revival in the land. These signs and wonders that Jesus did were designed to confirm that he was a Christ. So go backwards in John 2, in verse 11. <clears throat> This, begin, this beginning of his signs. By the way, the book of John is broken down through these various signs. So if you ever want to understand <coughs> excuse me, the flow of this passage, all you need to do is use a search version so that you can look up the word sign or signs, and it will help you see the flow of the book of John. And so in chapter 2, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And what was he doing? He manifested his glory, and now his disciples believed in him. So he's showing these signs, and now his disciples are coming to the point where they're beginning to trust him. Now, we know, if you read the rest of John, that that belief was not an absolute one. There was a process in which they're growing in what it means to believe in Jesus. Now, we can go to verse 23, and it says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But then it says in the very next verse, but Jesus on his own part was not entrusting himself to them. Why? Because he knew all men. So they were all, oh, we believe in him. He's doing these amazing signs. He's not so impressed with them, however. <clears throat> then in John chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus, he comes, and he seeks him out by night, and he says, we know 
that you have come from God as a teacher. Why? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's somewhat convinced that something special is happening. Then go over to John chapter 7, verse 31. John chapter 7, verse 31. Now, Nicodemus knew something was up because of the signs, but they still he still did not fully grasp who he was dealing with. In 7, verse 31, it says, But many of the multitude believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? So they recognized that he was doing amazing signs, but what they missed was that he was a Christ. They still think that Christ is somebody else, the Messiah, and he's going to come at a later time. All they're just convinced is that when the Messiah comes, it's not going to be any greater than what they're watching right now because what Christ was doing was amazing things. And then you can look at Acts 2 in our passage, go back and remember what Peter said in his sermon in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God, how? With miracles and with wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. So he is now again calling attention that this man, Jesus, whom they, by the way, killed, was doing these things and they know he was doing it for they witnessed it. Now, go to Matthew chapter 12. At the same time, they, all of these signs were designed to confirm who he was. That doesn't mean that it worked in the, other, in, in the sense of he was convincing everybody wherever he went that he was, in fact, who he was. So in chapter 12, verse 38 and 39, I'm in the wrong chapter. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him and saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So now they're like, okay, so show us another sign. But he answered and said to him, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign shall be given to it, but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. And he goes on to describe that. So now the leaders, the religious leaders are saying, show us some more, show us some more. He's like, no, basically, that's what he's saying. No, no. The next great sign that they'll witness is him dying and then rising from the dead. He's not impressed. He doesn't put his hope in the fact that he's able to do these miracles. He's doing them for a purpose, but it's not some grand ability to now do mass evangelism, even though still today people think that's what we need to do. Now I want you to go back to our passage and notice that only the apostles in verse 43 are the ones doing this. They All of this was taking place through the apostles. And in fact, the New Testament evidence about these signs and wonders is that it was always and only done through the apostles or through those who were specifically connected to them and commissioned by them to go and do specific works. So again, we're going to do a very quick uh, pre, uh, overview of this. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 12, and, and again, we're going to go quick. Uh, chapter 5, verse 12, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. So again, it's at the hands of the apostles that this is happening. Chapter 6, verse 8, 
Now, Stephen was a, a man that was commissioned by the apostles and was part of the group that was going out and caring for the widows. And so Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Mind you, he didn't win them to Christ. He got killed for it, but he was doing it. In chapter 14, verse 3, Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. This is Paul and Barnabas. um, Who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So notice, the Spirit was the one who was granting this ability to even do this. Then in chapter 15, verse 12, 15, 12, and all the multitude kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, this one's important because what's happening is that we're connecting the work of Paul among the Gentiles all the way back to Jerusalem. Paul is reporting to the apostles in Jerusalem what's going on out there among the Gentiles. And so the same event that was happening in Jerusalem in our passage, signs and wonders, he is saying, also I am seeing God work through me these signs and wonders. Then you can go one more passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. This one's worth highlighting if you do that. Paul just simply says that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. 2 Corinthians 12.12. 12. How, how could you know that you were dealing with a true apostle? Well, one of the ways was through these signs and miracles. There's others that had to be done if you were to be a true apostle, but that's how they knew. And so he's just simply saying that was the evidence. But I want you to understand, signs and wonders and these miracles, they were not done by the just the populace. They were not commonplace. They were done by the apostles and then also by those closely connected. What's also worth noting is that chapter 15 of Acts is the last time any signs or miracles are ever mentioned in the book of Acts. And so what you have is this fading out of this uh, activity of the Spirit through his people. Why? Well, it's likely due to the spread of the gospel because it's now gone forth and is fully entrenched, not just in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria, but into the outermost parts of the world. Now it's heading out to the frontiers and they're establishing the gospel in various cultures. And so as a result, now that it's there, it's not the signs and wonders that's the power of God unto salvation. It is the gospel. Now the gospel is established and people are mature and growing in the word. You don't need signs and wonders in any way, shape, or form. Simply preach the gospel. Now here's one thing that many people don't understand that gets missed when we talk about miracles or signs and wonders is that they're actually very rare in the Bible. This is where so much error takes place as often as so often as churches and people begin to fixate on these. And let's admit, they're kind of cool. And the power of simple, mundane living in the obedience of Jesus Christ begins to fade away. We, we downplay what it looks like just to wake up each morning and be a faithful mom or dad, husband or wife, 
Just a person saved by Jesus Christ and faithfully obeying Him in the small things of life that most of us have been called to do. We downplay that, and instead we spend our whole life pursuing something amazing, something exciting. But the Bible actually downplays this. Actually, as an aside, if miracles were commonplace, they wouldn't be miracles, would they? I mean, if every day you saw people healed of blindness and any time a guy was unable to walk, you could heal him and he would stand up and walk. And, and if at any point a person dies, you can just raise him from the dead. I mean, how many weeks would it take before you're like, eh? That's, that's just the nature of that which is miraculous. It is so unique that it shocks you. It's amazing. In fact, there's a man, his name is Bill Johnson. I'll talk a little bit more about him in a moment. Bill Johnson is a, I I hate to use the word pastor, and I hate to call it a church, but I'll use these terms loosely. He's the pastor of a large church in in Redding, California called Bethel. Bethel music is immensely popular in the Christian world. He argues his theology, and it's twisted and blasphemous in many, many ways, He says that Christians are to live in a culture of miracles. That we, because we are part of Christ and his kingdom, therefore we live in a reality of the supernatural. And that all around us, that if what we should be doing is experiencing extraordinary miracle power, and that should be ordinary for us. It should be the run of the mill. It should be just the way our lives are. What is, of course, hilarious about it, if it wasn't so sad, is that he is aging, and he has never yet, even though he claims that within his area of of Redding, California, that the faith is such that cancer and sickness cannot exist, he can't even fix his own eyesight. And so he wears his glasses. What's even more sad is that his wife is currently afflicted with serious cancer, and they can't seem to banish it. And yet thousands upon thousands upon thousands go to that place to be taught, trained, and experience this culture of the miraculous. The Bible we see, when you look at the Bible, you will see no miracles performed from Genesis 1 until to Moses and the Exodus, unless you want to call the flood a miracle. That's 2,500 years right there where no miracle is recorded as being done. After the Exodus, you then see, I mean, with the Exodus and the uh, move to the promised land, you actually see very few. They're really cool. I mean, let's admit, the spreading of the uh, Red Sea, the fall of Jericho, they're pretty amazing. They are signs and wonders. They're shocking and exciting, but there's not that many of them. In fact, the miracle of manna, to prove my point about if miracles were commonplace, they would stop being miracles. The first day they got manna from heaven, that was pretty cool, right? And they're like, man, manna from heaven, this is cool. On the 10th day, they were already getting tired of it. And it stopped being a miracle, and it just became the same old thing every day. And so we have these few miracles done with Moses and Joshua, The next time you're going to see miracles done in the Bible is in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. That's 500 years later, longer than our nation's been around. 
After that, you have no one doing signs and wonders, uh, though at times God would do miraculous things. We just read in our Bible reading about Sennacherib's army being destroyed in one night. And that's miraculous, but it's not somebody doing these things. God is just still doing what he does. He still swallows prophets that are trying to run away and spits them up on the shore they're supposed to be at. Those are miraculous, but they are not being done by people. So from there, we have several hundred more years go on, and then Jesus and the apostles. And again, these unique epochs in time, God works these signs and wonders. But after that, it stops. It just stops. And no amount of claims to the contrary will change that. You only have to do a cursory reading of church history to realize that everyone likes to, or a lot of people like to talk about the world of the miracles, but when you start to actually examine them, they become people with backaches and supposedly one leg shorter than the other and severe migraines. But what you don't see as, as again, I, I, I'm going to mock him because he deserves mocking. As Bill Johnson, he likes to claim the, the mass healings and the great powers and works. But when COVID hit, they shut down their campus and masked up. It's like, I'm not too impressed with this culture of miracles that you claim you have when that is what happens. Again, Bethel Church... There's so many examples I could point at. It's low-hanging fruit. That's why I'm using it, just for the sake of time. As I said, Bill Johnson, he's, he has a list of false teachings and practices, and yet many people still say, well, I think he's, he, he should be followed. I think we just need to spit the bones out and keep the meat. What's really horrible is that one of his leaders and their and the wife they lost their 2-year-old daughter Olive not Olivia Olive what was just disgustingly sad was for days the church and people worldwide were praying and singing and declaring with absolute authority and assurance that God would raise her up there was a song they would sing for hours on end in Jesus' name, Olive, come out of the grave, come out of that grave, in Jesus' name. And they would sing it for hours upon hours, for days. God was going to raise Olive, but he didn't. And yet, in spite of the fact that they declared with the absolute certainty of a prophet declaring the words of God, she remained dead and yet he still continues to tell people that sickness has no place in the realm of Christ and his people. Read the story of Johnny. Johnny Erickson Tata. So many have never read her story. J-O-N-I. You can get it for 99 cents. She was in the 70s. She's still alive. Worldwide ministry. Dove, into, uh, dove off a pier. Broke her neck at 17. Was an athletic girl. Now she's a quadriplegic. When she was in the hospital and discovered that this is her life now, she would fling her head as violently as she can, trying to snap her neck so that she could die. She did not want it. Instead, God continues to keep her alive. Even though she suffers great pain and suffering every day, she gets up every day and chooses 
to praise Jesus. And then you turn around and watch somebody with the smallest of suffering, and all they can do is complain about their great suffering. She ministers to millions of disabled individuals throughout the world. But in her early days, she wanted to be healed. And you can understand that. From the neck down, paralyzed, they would take her to countless faith healers. And they have handlers, and they would look at her, and they'd immediately push her always off to the side. And there was no chance that she would ever be talked to or dealt with. The faith healer was always busy with the ones with the headaches and the back pain. But her, nothing. And then she finally had to come to grips that they were liars and they were false. History is strewn with people claiming to carry the ability to do signs and wonders. But what is interesting to me is that the Bible speaks in the end times that the person doing these great signs and miracles will be the Antichrist and those around him. And the nations will be deceived and they will flock. Here's my point. And remember, I said the first two are going to be long points and then short. The unbelievers in Jerusalem were afraid. Why? Because they're seeing incredible things happening before their eyes. These guys are apostles. They're simple men. And yet they're doing amazing, incredible things. But it does not last long. Keep reading the book of Acts and you're going to find that they're going to rapidly go back into unbelief and outright rejection and murder even. The fear of God among unbelievers does happen, but it's not normal. We do not live in a time where the people fear God, do we? We live in a time where they mock him. Second point, we see in our passage in Acts 2, an incredible sense of generosity generosity among the believers. We see that in 44 and 5. All those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as every, anyone might have need. Now let me say it very simply. Generous people are forgiven people, and forgiven people should be generous people. Keep your finger here and just look at the story Jesus gives in Matthew 18, verse 21. Matthew 18, verse 21 Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but to 70 times seven, which requires math. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents, which is beyond comprehension the amount of money that was, and the slave had no hope to pay it. And since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife, children, and all that he had and repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him and saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything, which is silly. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, which is a small amount. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. And so the fellow slave fell down, began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. 
But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, came, reported to their Lord all that happened. The Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave, even though, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers till he should repay all that he was owed. So shall my... Now get this, we always skip over this verse. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. That's brutal. We have been forgiven. And therefore, we should be rich and generous as a people. And I'm not talking just with your money. I'm talking with your whole being. We should be rich in forgiveness. Generous, overflowing. That's why Paul commands in Colossians that you are to forgive one another. How? As Christ has forgiven you. And yet, as a pastor, I can't tell you the countless times I've had people sit in my office and look at me with bitter, angry eyes and say, I will not forgive. And I take him to Matthew 18, and I, will, I say to him, then you should fear on the day of judgment, for there is no reason for me to believe that you are in Christ if you will willfully refuse to forgive when you claim that you have been forgiven. It's brutal. In chapter uh, 6 of Luke, there's another passage. Chapter 6, verse 35 He lists three things of those who follow Christ and what they should be known for. If I ever get there. 6.35 Jesus commands us, but love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And if you do that, what will be great? Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men, meaning you and I. He has been kind to you. You are an ungrateful, even evil individual, and yet God in His rich mercy saved you through Jesus Christ, His Son. He's given you life through the Spirit. You now are a joint heir with Jesus Christ, and He says, I expect you to do what my Son did. You will love your enemies. You will do good, and you will lend without any expectation. Now, this passage in Acts 2 is not communism, and it's getting used all the time right now. It's not communism, it's not socialism, it's not even normative. You don't see anywhere else in the New Testament where this is remotely counseled or even uh, commanded. It was a simple, very natural, beautiful reaction to what all of these people had suddenly experienced and shared with regard to their salvation. With the rise of a strong socialistic kind of mindset in our nation and communist ideology, what we have today is many people taking this passage, ripping it out of its context and claiming that this is what we ought to be. See, communism, if it's done right, is good, and all we're doing is we're all sharing alike. That's not what's described here at all. And Christians who advocate this need to repent of it. What we have here in our passage is not uh, here in our passage what we have is not communism functioning 
What's happening is in communism, you are take the stuff you have is taken from you. That's called theft, and then redistributed to those who don't have not earned it. That's thievery. What is happening here is the people of their own free will, and when they felt led, they willfully chose to sell and to disperse. So again, nowhere is this commanded. In fact, go to chapter 4, verse 34, and it tells us that this went on for a while. So it says in verse uh, 34 of chapter 4, there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land and houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. And they would put it at the apostles' feet and then it would get dispersed out through the church. Well, that's all fine as well and that's good. But by the time you get to chapter 5, if you remember earlier on in my sermon, Ananias and Sapphira are lying about how much they made off of their land sale. And by chapter 6, the widows who are Greek-speaking are not being fed. So it, it was normal for the moment, and then it quickly became not normal. So this is not the way it works, though at times people will be so overcome by the, the glory of having come and received forgiveness for this sin that this spirit of generosity will just be overwhelming. God describes, or God is described in James chapter 1, verse 5, as being a God who gives to all of us generously. So that's consistent with us. We all possess skills and ability that, that are not ours. They're not one that we deserve, but rather it was given to us by our maker. If you're bitter about Bez, is it Bezos or Musk, any of these incredibly rich people, you say, no man needs that much money. Well, that's nice because you don't have it. I bet you'd have a different attitude if you had it. But I will tell you this simply. The reason they have it is not because of any other reason than God. Deuteronomy 8.18 says that it is God who gives us the ability to even make our wealth. In other words, all we have is because God has been generous to us. Jesus makes it so complex, we make it, or so simple, we make it all complex. He tells us that if we want to know where our heart is and what we really love, we merely need to look at what we spend. All we need to know is where are we investing our treasure, in heaven or here on the earth. And I have heard over the years countless people explain to me, look, we need to be responsible here. And that's not how Jesus says. He says, store your treasure in heaven or on earth. All it will do is reveal to you your heart. It will reveal to you who you love and who you serve. Every time, all the time. And no amount of talking changes those words of Jesus Christ. And yet, we constantly say, I'll give, I'll be generous when, and you can fill it in. Fill it in. I know I was a master at that. I was the best at rationalizing, not giving. And I got severely rebuked by a good friend of mine who held me accountable until I learned. He says, you store up for yourself treasures in heaven or you store up for yourself treasures on earth. But he says, the only one that you're going to keep is that which is stored for eternity. And all that you store here, I promise you, you lose it. He says, you will lose it. The Christians are to be generous, and that just poured out. 
I don't have time to look at the other passages there, but I gave a mention of them in Matthew 6 and 1 Timothy 6. Simply put, I would argue that a true believer should be generous, they should be open-handed, they should be quick to help, and I see that with so many of you in this church, and it does my heart good. It's very natural, in fact, I would argue it's the evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in you who has poured out upon us God's grace in its fullness. But it also is something that you and I can unlearn, like this church did. They were brand new believers, they're all excited, and they're all happy to sell their goods and, and help those who had need. At the same time, over time, they unlearned that, and they became just like many of us perhaps today. When we have young Christians, they need to be taught well to learn how to be generous and faithful in those things. And what they don't need is that older believer who tells them, now, now, let's not get overboard. None of that should be present. We should be exhorting and encouraging. But we should also not be telling them how they spend their money and tell them this is exactly how you should do it because it was, is born out of their own free will as they contemplate what God has done for them. Third point, we see in verse 46 of Acts 2, an unusual level of harmony and hospitality. Day by day, continue with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So they're daily gathering. They're going to the temple. Why? Because the temple was where any good Jew would go. They weren't breaking out of Judaism. They had now received the true Messiah, and they were still part of that whole world. It wasn't until Judaism kicked them out that they left. But they would gather there, and they're singing praises. They're being taught. They're also going to various people's homes. Realize, again, that they weren't separating from Judaism they were just simply enjoying the reality that the Messiah had come. Now understand that many of the people don't live in Jerusalem. Many of them travel from foreign countries. They should be traveling back home, but they've come to faith. And they now are part of this thing called the church. And they're not ready to leave. So they need a place to stay. They need a place to eat. They have to be taken care of. And all of the Jewish-born or uh, Israel. Yeah, Israeli, Israel born, however you say it, you know what I mean. Um, they're the ones taking care of them. They're the ones that have the property, so they're selling so that they can keep these guys here fed and cared for. It's really a beautiful picture of mutual concern. But again, chapter 6 shows it doesn't last. By that time, all of those foreign-born women who are widows, they're not getting fed. And so a problem arises. Notice they're taking the Lord's Supper extremely frequently. They're sharing meals. But what it stands out in this whole thing is the spirit in which these things are taking place. There's gladness and sincerity. The gladness is simply due to their fellowship. They, they shared in the gift of life in Christ. They shared in the power of the life of the Holy Spirit. They shared in the instruction of the apostles. And so with that, there's this tremendous one-mindedness, and that comes and creates gladness. They weren't fighting. There's sincerity. The English Standard Version says generous. The King James Version says singleness. The New English Translation, the Net Bible, makes it humble. All of them show you how complex the word is actually in the Greek language. 
but it talks of a humility of heart that's born out of a simplicity of perspective. We tend to overthink too much. These people didn't. They didn't overthink anything. They just looked and they're like, you need a safe place to say, yes, we got a place. How hard is that, right? How much thinking? This is my new sister in Christ and she's a widow and we got a place you can sleep. We got food. We'll, we'll just take care of you. We'll help. No complexity in the thinking. It's pure. It's without any subtle trickery or motives. It's something, again, that we who are older in Christ have to strive to maintain because we forget too soon. We need our private time, our me time. Right? We need our coffee. But what we don't need is to just have our house open and the people invited and that they're welcome. And that, that when you have these people come over, that you labor, maybe to the point of exhaustion, show them kindness. You serve them. This is how it ought to be. This is what young Christians in the faith do naturally here, but it's not normal. Fourth, the believers were filled with the heart of praise. In the first part of verse 47, praising God, that's all I'll deal. Now, I lied. This should be normative. But it's not, right? It's not normative, though it should be. Are you a person? Look, tell you what. Look on your Instagram, TikTok, whatever you're doing. I hope you're not, but TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. Scroll through all of your posts and ask yourself, do these express a thankful heart? A heart that's praising God. Not kind of praising while you're slipping in all of your problems or complaints or concerns or bitterness toward the government or all of the other stuff. Are you a man or woman known for praising God? Is that what comes from your life and mouth? Do your children think of you as a person who praises God, or are you murmuring and grumbling the day away? We need to understand that this activity and attitude flows, again, from new believers. They were lost, but now they're found. Their sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. They have life in the Spirit. They have eternal life promised to them. They shall participate fully in the new heavens and earth. And so what comes to mind? They praise Jesus. And over time, though, the trials of life do come. They become the excuse for us to stop praising God. And even the mundane, boring things of life, such as diapers, begin to rob us of that heart of praise. And that's why we gather. That's why we sing the songs we sing. That's why we clap. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I don't clap. You don't want me to clap. But the reason we gather for corporate worship is to fuel praise because we share in song, we share in prayer, we share in the Lord's Supper, we share in the hearing and the reading and the learning of the Word of God. We share our lives together. And if we are wise, then we speak to one another on these days in such a way that we look to a way to encourage and show kindness to one another. And this then helps draw our hearts back to praise. 
My fifth point is in 47b, the second part of this verse. The early church was embraced and appreciated by the unbelievers around them. Now, you know that was not, is not normal. There are simply times in the history and life of the church where the governments and the people will see the presence of Christians as a good thing. Church history is actually littered with excellent examples of this as Christians sought to be a blessing to the communities. During the Black Plague, it was the Christians who stayed behind to care for those who were dying. Why? Because they're dying and they need to hear the gospel. They need to have hope. They need to know the way of life. And if a Christian dies, who cares? Or do you believe that? Who cares? Do you lose? No. And so they they looked and they're like, you flee, we stay, we'll be a blessing to our people you can read about uh, how various areas, in, villages in the remote areas of, of Africa and Asia where the, the leaders of the village are happy when a church is present because it was through that church that so much good is done to the community. You can read about George Mueller of Bristol where he cared for thousands and thousands of orphans over his lifetime in Bristol, England. The purpose of Sunday school, if you didn't know, was first developed Because the people, the children on the streets were not taught. They could not read. They had no education. Many of them were orphaned. And so the the idea was to bring them in and create this thing called a Sunday school where they were not just taught about Jesus, but they were taught how to read and write. They were a blessing. And And the city leaders embraced the church for that purpose. They were blessing the community. And so they rejoiced. But that passes away. There are other times where no matter what you do, good, the people will hate you. I think we're living in those times more and more. During the good times, though, I would say the church should recognize it's the good time and that they should establish strong foundations to prepare for the bad times. What instead happens is during the good times, we're so busy getting stupid that when the bad times come, we're not equipped to stand firm. And so we fritter away all of this glorious freedom that God gives us and we lose it because we were not ready for the bad. In the very beginning of the church, God created this bubble of safety for them. It allowed them to become established. But then that changed rapidly. And by chapter 4 and 5, the leaders are being beaten and put in jail. And by chapter 7, they're being killed. It's not normal. So which one is the sign of blessing? Getting killed or having peace? They both are. Because they both come from the same sovereign God. And we don't always understand His ways, but they're the right ways. So in the good times, He gives rest to His children. In the bad times, He gives grace so that we might endure and even grow. In the time of persecution, history shows us that the church always expands. It's only in the times of peace where we become lazy and wander from sound doctrine. But in all of these times, whether it be peace or it be hardship, we praise God. Six, and finally, the last part of verse 7, 47, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church 
was growing numerically. And that's not always the case. Maybe on the macro level it is, but not on a micro level. They were all faithful to share their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone was excited. It was a time, if you will, of revival. All of these young believers wanted the others to know. When was the last time I just that you have established the effort to share your faith? To establish the opportunity to speak of Jesus Christ. That's what they did. And they were all doing it. Now, it wasn't something that was a private point of personal belief that they didn't want to tell others. It was the effect of them coming to faith was seen and felt quickly. And that's really probably what led quickly to the persecution that followed. It's one thing to have a harmless small group over here doing some crazy stuff. But it's a whole other thing that it starts to multiply and get bigger and bigger. And now the power structures are threatened then. We got to deal with these people. But again, it's not normal. Don't be discouraged if the church isn't growing where you're at. I remember when I came here, the very, I think it was the very first Sunday I preached. I, I have the records written down. We had 166 show up on that Sunday. They wanted to see who this pastor, Matt Henry, was. In a span of about three years, I shrunk it to 48. And it was good. It sucked. Forgive me if I'm not allowed to say that. But it was good. Every, every Sunday, Kim and I would come to church wondering who else is going to be gone. And how many more will be gone. There's a time where the church must shrink. And there's a time where the church must grow. And we must be willing to praise God in both of those times. You can do everything right as a pastor or elder and not grow. But let me make one observation here that bears noting. The growth of the church here was not due to some brand development, church growth technique, marketing, or a really good band. It was God who was adding the numbers. Salvation from beginning to end is always that work of God in us, both individually and corporately. Not all growth is God's growth, but all growth that comes from God will remain to the end. So our task is simply to cast forth the gospel. Others will water that gospel, and God will cause that growth. So let me tie this all up. When we look at this passage, you and I, if we're not careful, can become discouraged or defensive because we don't measure up to this, do we? But it's really not normal for any church to function like this. Even a so-called mega church plateaus at some point. And so we remember not to allow a passage like this to control our thinking or practice. Growth is not the ultimate goal of the church. It's always going to be fidelity to the Word of God. In the good times, the church is ready to bring new people in and now train them to maturity because the Word of God stands center. And in the bad times, the church is able to remain stable and endure well because they know truth. And in the in-between times, it's able to remain pointed in the right direction because the Word of God is the standard. The glory of God is the goal, and the hope found in Christ is the reason. Our task here at Missio Dei Fellowship is simply to be faithful. 
So my exhortation to you is own it. Let's pray. Holy Father, as we now go away, I, I pray that in some way this passage strengthened, encouraged, corrected people. I know that it does work that I don't even understand. But I thank you for the certainty of the word and the mercies that you show us in it. I thank you for the way that you work in our church and that you seem to continue to establish us in the word, that we be found faithful in it. I pray that now as we prepare to go home, that we again consider a heart of generosity, a heart in which we desire to tell others of hope in Jesus Christ, and that we would be done with that petty jealousy for things that are not ours to have. Let us be simply content in the mundane things in which we are to be found faithful. Thank you for your mercies. Thank you for the great patience you show us. Thank you for all that we have in Christ through the Spirit. In your Son's holy name, amen.